Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A windstorm in South Illinois kicks up dangerous clouds of dust, blinding drivers. Officials report multiple injuries and even fatalities. J.P. Morgan Chase acquires First Republic Bank. First Republic, now the second largest bank to fail in U.S. history. The DOJ is ramping up its latest probe into possible wire fraud by the 2020 Trump campaign and a super PAC. We speak to a legal commentator about how it relates to the underlying Trump criminal investigation. Analysis on the rise in homicide rates in cities across the nation. Which five cities' rates increased most quickly over the past year and why? And driving, flying and working machines filled an airport in a California coastal town over the weekend. Enthusiasts and collectors showcased their prized possessions for all to see. Tragic news from central Illinois. Multiple people are reportedly killed after a dust storm wreaked havoc on the highway. It caused a massive pileup of vehicles and dozens of injuries as well. This is still all according to state police. Stretches of I-55 closed this afternoon, including in areas around the Illinois capital Springfield. Roughly 40 to 60 passenger cars and several big rig trucks were involved in crashes around noontime. Some 30 people were transported to local hospitals with injuries. Two of the trucks caught fire and it was possible one of them had exploded. The dust storm caused by strong wind gusts blowing across newly plowed fields. And the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. California financial regulators ordered First Republic Bank to be closed. The FDIC is to contribute around $13 billion in the bank's buyout. For more, we turn to Business News with Don Ma. All right, thanks, Steph. So the biggest news today is J.P. Morgan Chase acquiring First Republic Bank. The federal government seized the bank and sold it to J.P. Morgan Chase earlier today. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, said uh, J.P. Morgan will assume all of the deposits and all of the assets of First Republic Bank. It's going to pay $10.6 billion to the FDIC as part of the deal. So basically, for customers of First Republic, you're now a customer of J.P. Morgan. And here's what the president had to say about the acquisition today. I'm pleased to say that the regulators have taken action to facilitate the sale of First Republic Bank and ensure that all depositors are protected and the taxpayers are not on the hook. These actions are going to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound and that includes protecting... And of course, this comes after First Republic saw a rough couple of weeks, you know, people taking deposits out of the bank and putting it into bigger banks, its shares plummeting as well. For more insight on this topic, I brought Peter Earle, economist from the American Institute for Economic Research. Now, Peter, maybe you can speak to this point. We know J.P. Morgan acquired uh, First Republic, all of its deposits and assets. But what about its liabilities? Is it acquiring that as well? 
So First Republic had been given $30 billion in funding, but the deposits kept leaving. So uh, when the requests for bid were put out, only J.P. Morgan really sort of stepped up to the plate. Um, first, I would say I think it's pretty pretty interesting that the political party that viscerally hates bigness in, in business uh, is more than happy to see a massive corporation get bigger when it preserves its reelection chances. As for the liabilities, uh, I have a feeling that the departure of, uh, of deposits will probably stop uh, with the confidence that uh, being taken over by uh, J.P. Morgan brings for the remaining deposit base, which isn't very big, but there's still some depositors left. So I, I want you to comment on, are we seeing a banking crisis? So the, I, what I would say is that the acquisition of First Republic by J.P. Morgan probably signals the end of this phase of a mini banking crisis, but whether or not it's the last phase, we're going to have to see. I mean, we've got short-term interest rates are still rising. Um, the Fed's going to raise another 25 basis points in this coming Wednesday, and uh, we've got slowing economic growth. So there's some challenging times coming for banking. Uh, we're going to have to wait another quarter or two to see exactly how stable the banking system is and to know for sure that this, whether or not this is the end. All right, Peter, thanks very much today for talking with me. Pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me. So, of course, this is the third banking collapse since March. And for just over one month, Silicon Valley Bank was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. But after today, First Republic Bank will take that spot as the new second largest bank to fail in U.S. history. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Don. Now, the Biden administration is planning to end a slew of COVID-19 vaccine mandates. That includes its requirement for foreign travelers arriving by flight. That mandate is set to end on May 12th, as will mandates for federal workers and federal contractors. But not all mandates are ending. Some agencies, like the National Institutes of Health, are keeping their mandates for now. For others, the White House is promising to wind down the vaccine requirement in the future, but not giving any specific dates. Those include mandates for Head Start employees, healthcare facilities certified by federal regulators, and non-citizens arriving by land. And another Asian ally fostering stronger ties with the U.S. President Biden welcomed the President of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., to the White House today. During the meeting, Biden announced the first ever presidential trade and investment mission to the Philippines. The two leaders also discussed security matters in the Indo-Pacific, economic cooperation, and climate concerns. Biden reaffirmed the United States' commitment to defend the Philippines. And the United States also remains ironclad in our, remains ironclad in our commitment to the defense of the Philippines, including the South China Sea, and we're going to continue to support the Philippines' military modernization goals. This is the first time in more than 10 years that a Philippine president has made an official visit to the U.S. The U.S. and the Philippines are strengthening their bonds amid tensions in the Indo-Pacific coming from the Chinese regime. Last week, the U.S. and the Philippines completed their largest military drills ever. And earlier today, the two countries' air forces held their first joint fighter jet training in the Philippines since 1990. The Philippines this year also agreed to give the U.S. access to four more military bases. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy visited Israel in his first trip overseas as Speaker. His visit came just days after Israel's 75-year anniversary. And McCarthy vowed strong support for the nation.
The world is better when America and Israel are tighter. The world is safer. And uh, I think what we've been able to accomplish, the only democracy in the Middle East, there's only two countries in the world that were conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all people are equal. And uh, as we continue to grow that, uh, I think the world will be safer, be stronger, and our children will have a much beautiful world in the future. President Biden has yet to invite Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the White House since his re-election. Biden previously showed concerns about Israel's possible judicial overhaul, which drew thousands of protesters in Jerusalem. The changes would take away some power from Israel's unelected judges. Opponents say that will give more power to Netanyahu and his allies in parliament. McCarthy said if Biden doesn't invite Netanyahu to D.C., then he will. Federal prosecutors are probing deeper into the Save America Political Action Committee. They suspect the PAC was used illegally by the Trump campaign when it allegedly raised $250 million. NTD's Arlene Richards has the latest. Federal prosecutors, led by special counsel Jack Smith, are taking a deeper dive into the inner workings of the Save America PAC, and they're closely scrutinizing the Trump campaign's efforts to prove election fraud in 2020. The DOJ is alleging the PAC directed by the Trump campaign misled donors into believing the election was fraudulent without any evidence to back up his claims. I spoke to legal commentator Horace Cooper to understand how this new probe relates to the underlying January 6th investigation. So the January 6th case allegedly is about whether or not there was some conspiracy or active effort on the part of President Trump and close political appointees and allies to prevent the lawful and peaceful um, transference of authority of, of power from President Trump to President Biden. What this wire fraud investigation does is say that in the event that you can't actually show that there was some effort to prevent the lawful transfer of power. We now have another charge that we're going to pursue as a basis uh, for some prosecution against you. But he said in order to prove a wire fraud violation, prosecutors would have to show that Trump directed the PAC to defraud donors out of money. You'd have to have President Trump Say to someone, I know that I, did, I lost fair and square. I want you to go out and set up a website and send out emails to people while we trick them into getting, giving their money. He said prosecutors can't prove the election was fair because no formal exam was conducted to determine that. Prosecutors have issued multiple subpoenas in an effort to get more details on the Trump campaign and the PAC's finances, spending, and fundraising. Marlene Richards, NTD News. Which U.S. cities are the safest and which are most dangerous? A new report outlines the cities with the biggest issues with homicides. Topping Wallet Hub's list of homicide increases per capita over the past year is Richmond, Virginia, Memphis, Tennessee, Durham, North Carolina, Garland, Texas, and Washington, D.C. 
That's amid a general rise in homicide rates, increasing by an average of about 10 percent in 45 of the most populated cities across the nation. And those rates are still rising. To discuss this trend, what's driving it, and possible solutions, I spoke with Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, earlier today. Jason Johnson, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Now, this new report that's out is highlighting the homicide rate increases across the country. What's your response to that? Yeah, well, you know, homicide rates and rates of other types of violent crime have been increasing in, in cities uh, across America now for, for several years. And I think there are two primary causes. One is prosecutors who have chosen not to prosecute uh, violent offenders and many others. And also law enforcement officers and law enforcement uh, departments, police departments primarily, that are, are taking a much more passive approach to addressing uh, increasing crime than they have in the past. And what kind of long-term impacts do you anticipate these kinds of policies having on businesses and residents? Well, what, you know, I, I approach a lot of these uh, problems I think about from the perspective of a young uh, law enforcement officer uh, who, you know, a relatively young police officer who, who doesn't know any different, uh, uh, may perhaps uh, was trained and uh, entered the law enforcement profession under the circumstances that exist right now, where law enforcement is actually taking a very passive approach. They're, they're operating almost like the fire department does, where they wait to get a call and then they respond to the scene of the call and they address it. And we know that really to reduce crime, law enforcement officers need to be proactive. They need to be looking for people who are violating the law and taking action. Um, and these officers have, have come into the profession at a time where there's legislation to prohibit police officers from making traffic stops. There's legislation, uh, there's law in New York City now that heavily regulates the ability, what officers can do in order to make an arrest so they avoid making arrests. Um, what I worry about is when the tide finally does turn and you know the proverbial pendulum swings back and people want to see proactive law enforcement, are any of our police officers gonna know how to do it? because they weren't raised in an environment where it was commonplace to be on the lookout for criminal activity. Right now, officers are incentivized to sort of bury their head in the sand and not take any action of any kind as to not get themselves in trouble or prosecuted. Um, and my concern is it's not, it's not gonna be easy to shift back because I just wonder if our law enforcement agencies are still even equipped uh, to engage with criminals in that way. And I, that's the part that concerns me most. That does sound concerning. And what do you think needs to change then? What, what next steps to start this process and bring us back from that danger zone? Yeah, well, you know, it starts um, with the small business owner. It starts with the residents of these cities telling their elected officials in no uncertain terms that they're tired not only of the violent crime, but also the disorder, the the uh, the ability of, for people to go into retail stores and just start grabbing things off the shelves and walk out without any fear of consequences. The streets in so many cities just um, they are just disordered, <laughs> because uh, you know we know when 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 you don't pay attention to the little things, the little things become big things, and so I think it really is incumbent upon you know leaders in these cities think that this is what their constituents want. They think their constituents want soft on crime policies, and I just don't think that's true. So I think, you know, uh, the, the mom and pop shop, the resident who, you know, living in these cities, they need to let their mayors, their district attorneys, their city council members, 
their elected state representatives and so on. No, this isn't how we want to live. We want our cities to be orderly, clean. We want the law enforced fairly and constitutionally, but we want the law enforced. Um, and I think it's the when, once politicians realize that their political futures hinge on their ability to go back to those more traditional policies, I think we'll start to see this change. Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The IRS is releasing the latest tax migration data, and it shows an exodus of taxpayers from high-tax states. California, New York, and Illinois are suffering some of the nation's biggest losses of people and money. According to IRS data, California saw a net loss of 332,000 taxpayers and their dependents. The state's tax base shrank by nearly $29 billion. In second place was New York State. It has a net loss of 262,000 people. Illinois was in third place with a net loss of 105,000 people. Other high-tax states such as Massachusetts and New Jersey also saw tens of thousands of people moving out during the period from 2020 to 2021. On the winning side, Florida enjoyed the most net immigration, with the state saw a net gain of 256,000 new residents and $39 billion in gross income. In second place is Texas, which gained 175,000 people. Other states that gained more taxpayers include, taxpayers include Nevada, North Carolina, Arizona, and South Carolina. And the annual Religious Freedom Report is released today. Almost 30 countries are coming under fire, but by far the worst offender is China. NTD's Arian Pazdar has a summary of the findings and what one of the authors of the report has to say. The United States Commission on International Religious Freedom on Monday released its annual Religious Freedom Report. On this map you can see the 28 countries the report deemed to have the worst situations. 17 of those are represented in a darker shade of blue, indicating even worse situations. In an accompanying statement, the Commission said those 17 governments engage in or tolerate systematic, ongoing and egregious violations of the right to freedom of religion or belief. The country with the most offenses is China. The report found that a whopping 39% of offenses were committed by the CCP. The Commission's chair tells NTD there is proof of one especially brutal means of persecution. Credible reports that China has been engaging in uh, organ harvesting. Uh, uh, this is also a decades-long practices. Many of the most targeted groups for religious persecution are in China. The CCP is heavily persecuting Muslim Uyghurs. This chart shows that a large percentage of victims are Muslim or Sunni Muslim. Falun Gong practitioners are also among the most targeted groups. At the end of the day, the Chinese uh, leadership uh, would need to recognize that people of faith actually not a threat to the society, actually helps to have a healthy society. This has been shown by uh, Falun Gong practitioners, uh, Tibetan Buddhists, and other people of faith. The, instead of spending so much money and resources on domestic security, Chinese needs to loosen up its um, restriction on religious practices. According to the report, China isn't the only country targeting Falun Gong practitioners. Russia and Vietnam also show violations in people's liberty to follow the meditation practice. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a spiritual practice rooted in the principles of truthfulness, compassion and tolerance. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com.
And coming up, over 100,000 protesters hit the streets of the French capital. Some even resort to violence to express their frustration over the government raising the retirement age. And in lighter news, driving, flying and working machines filled an airport in a California coastal town over the weekend. Enthusiasts and collectors showcased their prized possessions for all to see. May 1st is May Day, which is an international day of union-led marches. And in the French capital, over 100,000 people protested over the government's decision to raise the retirement age. Police used water cannons and tear gas to try to disperse the crowds. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. And on Monday, thick black smoke rose over thousands of protesters in Paris, France. Most demonstrators were peaceful, but some started a fire near a building that's under construction, and others shattered windows of stores and banks. The protesters rallied against French President Emmanuel Macron's recent move to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Police tried to disperse the crowds with water cannons, and police even fired tear gas at the demonstrators to help clear the area. Others avoided the confrontations and gathered on rooftops to watch the events unfold. Firefighters, on the other hand, climbed to the top of another building to put out a fire that had started during the protests. Protesters even set a bicycle docking station on fire over their frustration at Macron's retirement age hike. So why did the French government make such an unpopular move? They say the current system, which relies on the working population to pay the pensions of a growing number of retirees, is no longer fit for its purpose. And the pensions deficit would reach more than $13 billion annually by 2027. A protester, however, said they'll fight until the reform is abandoned. Jason Perry, NTD News. And as tensions mount between Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District Board today announced it would file a countersuit against the theme park. Since Disney sued us, yes, we didn't sue Disney, Disney sued us, we have no choice now but to respond. Disney had filed a lawsuit in federal district court last week against DeSantis and the board. It accused them of illegally using the government to punish the company for exercising its free speech rights and blamed the board for decisions that would ultimately void future development contracts. Last year, the theme park criticized a Florida bill prohibiting classroom discussions about sexuality and gender identity with younger children. State lawmakers later passed legislation that canceled Disney's special tax status. On Monday, DeSantis said it was wrong for one corporation to run as its own government. And on Sunday, crowds of enthusiasts and collectors flocked to Half Moon Bay Airport. The Pacific Coast Dream Machine fundraiser returned after three years. It showcased about 2,000 driving, flying, and working machines from the 20th and 21st centuries. NTD's David Lamb hears from some of the professional collectors. This was the marine, you know, this, these came out of boats. So this is kind of a, just a nice little running engine. 
47-year-old Robbie Peter has been collecting engines since 14 years old. He now has tons of them from the 1900s. This is only a small part of his collection he's showcasing at the annual Pacific Coast Dream Machine in Half Moon Bay. Are these all gas powered? Yeah, yeah. everything we have here today is gasoline or propane because the oil fields, uh, they had natural gas. Hobbyists and collectors alike share and trade parts to fix their engines because he says you can't get the parts from a regular auto parts store. Like earlier today, a guy came to me and said, hey, I have an old hammer mill. I, I want it to go to a good home. So he actually gave it to us to, uh, I'm gonna restore it when I get it. The craft holds a special place in his heart. Unfortunately, there's not as many younger generation that are collecting. Uh, because I don't know if they have the interest, but I, re I believe everything revolves and eventually we will get a younger generation to come back and start collecting when I'm old. Even at this festival, you get a chance to ride on World War II vehicles. And it's from the American Armory Museum and is the first time arriving at this festival. One collector wanted to support veterans and show people what soldiers went through. What got me into the military collecting is one, um, I believe in our military. Although I was never in the military, I support our military. You get excited about bringing back history. If you're a history buff and you love history, it's nice to drive the real thing. This is the Dream Machine's 30th year, making a return from a three-year hiatus out of the pandemic. I like it a lot. Yeah, I knew it was yes. fun. Yes. Yes. Part of the history. That pumping is part of history. It was in a real world war. The annual event sends its proceeds to nonprofits like the Coastside Adult Health Center. Reporting in Half Moon Bay, California, David Lamb, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.